Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, the shit no one tells you about writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Applications are now open for Author Accelerator's 2022 Manuscript Incubator, where 16 writers will get seven months of one-on-one book coaching through a revision and the opportunity to present their revised manuscript to a panel of agents and publishers. To celebrate applications opening up and to give you an idea of how a book coach can help you with the revision process, Author Accelerator is hosting a free online workshop on July 8th called Ready, Set, Revise, How to Plan and Revise a Novel or Memoir. If you're ready to tackle a revision head on and you want some added support, head to authoraccelerator.com slash manuscript hyphen incubator to learn more about the incubator and to save your spot for this summer's free event. everyone welcome to another books with hook segment we're using our new format today in which we're trying to get to as many queries as possible so carly will look at two and cc will look at two remember if you are a kofi supporter who supports us monthly you will have access to all four of these query letters in terms of their written critique for those who are once-off supporters you'll have access to two of the query letters all right cc why don't you kick us off Dear The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, thank you so much for taking a look at my submission. I love your show. The Gap Year, Adult Fiction, 89,000 Words. 
is an upmarket beach read set during the Great Recession about a young millennial artist trying to outrun grief, but tripping over familial obligations, romantic entanglements, and a mountain of unpaid bills. It is told in a style that mixes the wry realism of Sally Rooney's Normal People with the humor of Jen DeLuca's Well Met. Like Reality Bites for Millennials, it's a story of 20-somethings colliding in tragedy, comedy, and romance, and early 2000s nostalgia. 23-year-old Marion Reeves is a person with a future in a coveted spot at a prestigious New England graduate arts program. She's on her way to fulfilling her dreams of becoming a successful portrait painter. But when her beloved father dies of an overdose, she stops painting and gets kicked out of the program without a plan she packs her life into her dad's old bronco and hits the road winding up 700 miles away on the doorstep of her best friend divya marion convinces her grad school to let her back in on one condition she must finish a portrait series easy enough but uninspiring raleigh north carolina has more distractions than marion anticipated a dead-end coffee shop that she cares more about than she should a crush on a fellow barista that she just can't shake of loveless affair with the town's problematic rich boy and the same creative block that got her kicked out of school in the first place now marion must untangle herself from these complications before her school's re-entry deadline comes crashing down and this gap year turns into a gap life i am the author of the award-winning picture book the king of the birds groundwood 2016 Inspired by the life of Flannery O'Connor, I received the Louis Sudler Prize in the Arts for my writing while at Emory University, where I graduated summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa from the Creative Writing Program. This is my debut novel. Thank you for your time and consideration. Acri Graham McCam. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. All right. Why don't you tell us what you thought of that query letter? Okay. So... Very, very well-written query letter. Thank you so much for querying us. You mentioned upmarket beach read, and I have to say, I didn't get beach read vibes reading this. Maybe I'm wrong, but it didn't bother me. I just didn't really get beach read vibes. First paragraph, when you mentioned the hook that she's trying to outrun grief and tripping over familial obligations, romantic entanglements, and amount of unpaid bills, my question is, any chance we can focus on the specificity of the hook as opposed to the inner life. Like, for example, in normal people, and you're using this as a comp, it was the common denominator between the two protagonists. His mom was her cleaning lady and they went to the same school, which obviously, you know, is a great hook. And, you know, your last sentence of the first paragraph, colliding in tragedy, comedy, romance, early 2000s nostalgia, really interesting, but at the same time, a little vague. So I do recommend leaning into specificity. The plot paragraph is absolutely excellent. Like, excellent, so well written. If there is a way to hint at a power imbalance, that would make it even stronger because it would make it more commercial and you are promising me an upmarket novel. Because as it stands, like I said, super well written. I understand the journey. I understand the pressures and the plot escalation, or I should say the plot points. But there isn't a lot of pressure being applied to the main character. It seems like a quieter novel, which is fine. But if it's upmarket, we will expect a little bit more pace. 
So yeah, if there's a way to hint at power imbalance, that's a great way to up the tension. And you know, this is a perfect author paragraph, like really, really, really well written. Wonderful. All right, Cece, will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? The protagonist, Marion, is walking on campus carrying a note that she dreads. The note says, Marion, please swing by my office after class today. I'd like to have a little chat. Marion knows that it can't be good news because whenever someone says we need to talk, bad things happen. It's how her high school boyfriend initiated breakup talks with her. It's how her dad broke the news that he was divorcing her mom. It's how her mom started the conversation she had months ago when she got her dad's autopsy back. So Marion arrives in school and tries to pay attention to class, but she's really distracted. The professor, and that's the person who wrote the note, approaches Marion's workstation and notices how there hasn't been any progress in Marion's painting in two weeks. So then we cut to the professor's office in which the professor asks Marion, you know, how is she doing? Because Marion is having a hard time delivering assignments and keeping up with the university's expectations. And Marion thinks to herself, maybe I should tell her everything that's going on, but that sounds like a cheap excuse, so she doesn't. And the professor suggests that Marion takes a break, and Marion is horrified. So that's essentially what happens. Wonderful. Okay, so what was your take on those opening pages? In terms of the opener, I would focus more on the emotionality and on the dread than on the wind whipping through the flannel shirt and the leaves crunching under the feet. It's really well written, don't get me wrong, but openers should build tension. This is really important. This is very well written. I like that we're discussing someone's artistic side. I like that we're talking about, you know, what is essentially like writer's block, but for artists, for painters. So there's a lot of potential here for inner life. I do think it's quiet. Nothing wrong with quiet if that's the intention, but it goes back to my note when I was reading the query letter, which is if you're promising upmarket, then I need a little bit more pace. If you're looking for ways to up tension, I recommend giving her a misbelief and then having a power imbalance lead to a surprise disruptive outcome. So for example, she could be under the impression that she was safe from the talk with Deirdre, right? She could be arriving at school being like, I have this horrible note, but it's all good because she had an arrangement with Travis. Travis promised to add her name to his work. Travis is someone who's in the opening pages. I'm not making this person up. (laughs) Maybe it was like a group project. I don't know. Except Travis doesn't do that. Travis screws her over, right? Meaning that when she's at the office, she thinks she's safe, but then bam, this new information reaches her and she's in trouble. Now, probably that specific example won't work because it might not be in keeping with her morality. It might not be in keeping with the school's assignments with the nature of art school, but it's meant to illustrate how you can up the tension. Because right now she walks into that office knowing that it's not good. She's still really shocked by the suggestion of taking a break, which to me didn't really read as believable. And I will also say that I don't think a university would do this. I think a university would have mentioned a break sooner with a warning. Like if you don't don't deliver X, we are going to talk probation. We are going to talk, you know, whatever the consequences is. I don't think that someone would first mention a consequence of this gravity and then follow up immediately. There's also another moment where attention could be added. So, you know, if you don't mind me suggesting, there's on page five, I consider telling her everything right then, but it would have felt cheap, like an excuse and one that was too late. So I assume this is referring to her dad's death. Probably the professor doesn't know that her dad died. And I like that she's withholding information from the person she's speaking to. That is an excellent source of tension. However, I would like to have another source of tension, which is mystery-based tension from the reader. It seems like the reader knows everything there is to know here. And so for example, what if she thought to herself, if only she knew that it's not as simple as me having lost my dad, if only she knew the truth about what the autopsy revealed, 
Now, obviously, this would require there to even be a mystery with the autopsy, but that's that's something that would make me go, wait, hold on, what what truth did her dad's autopsy reveal, and how could that possibly be messing with her head? So that's just an example, but again, I want more tension, but that's that's what I always want when I read pages, so I'm pretty sure listeners are tired of, of hearing me say that at this point. It's There's a lot of potential here, and thank you for sharing. Wonderful, Cece, thank you. Okay, Carly, will you read us that next query letter? Dear Carly, I recently discovered your podcast and am devouring it. It's fabulous. Thank you. I'm submitting The Museum of Happiness, women's fiction with a romantic subplot complete at 81,000 words. Because of its themes and humor, this novel would appeal to fans of Kelly Harms, Sophie Kinsella, and Camille Pagan. When goal-driven Lottie chucks life in Seattle to work alongside her longtime boyfriend Emmett at the prestigious Museum of Modern Art, she can't imagine being happier until she discovers Emmett's secret. Unable to tolerate working with him, she quits her dream job and scrambles to find another. It's no consolation when she's hired as the director of a new museum, the ridiculous New York City Museum of Happiness. Lottie may not be proud of the director of happiness, but she's not about to fail. People in her family just don't. So with the museum's grand opening deadline looming, Lottie navigates restoring a vandalized museum, negotiating with an unreasonable board member, and recovering from a series of stinging humiliations. Ever been caught at work in the bathroom trying to dry your bra under the hand dryer? With embarrassments piled on her discovery about Emmett, she slapped with another shock, this time about the father she'd always counted on. So Lottie focuses on the part of life she can kind of control, getting the museum open on time. One thing she knows for sure, it's definitely not the time for a new relationship. Although Bjorn, the chair of the museum's board, seems perfect. I mean, those eyes... Despite comical distraction and heartbreaking betrayals, working at the Museum of Happiness turns out to be just what this perfectionist needs. Lottie learns through the hard work of launching the museum and the insight of quirky co-workers that genuine happiness can thrive in an imperfect life. My first novel, Towards the Corner of Mercy and Peace, will be published summer 23 by Regal House Publishing. I have been a writer and editor for 30 years, primarily for newspapers and magazines, and was the recipient of the Kentucky Press Association's Best Feature Writer and Best Column Awards. My middle grade biography, To Be Greater Than Marconi, The Nathan B. Stubblefield Story, was published as part of the Kentucky Hero Series by Motes Books. I'm a member of Women's Fiction Writers Association, a writing critique group, and write a lifestyle blog. Thanks so much for taking time to read my submission. I look forward to hearing from you. All the best, Tracy Buchanan. Awesome, Colleen. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on that? All right. I really love this title, (laughs) The Museum of Happiness. I just think there's so much packed into this really interesting title and kind of hook of her working in a museum of happiness, even though she's not happy. I think this is really, really, really adorable and and eye-catching and unique. Okay, and now for some technicalities. So just starting off with some word choice. So we have when goal-driven Lottie chucks life in Seattle. I don't know if the word chucks here, I don't know if it's meaning to be kind of casual, but upending your entire life and kind of moving coast to coast, to me, it's more than chucks. I don't know. That just didn't really seem like the right word choice there. And there's also some assumptions that are made, for example, that everybody knows where the Museum of Modern Art is, because she doesn't say Chuck's life in Seattle to move to New York. She just says, you know, Chuck's life in Seattle to work at the Modern Museum of Art. So that just seemed like a little bit of a leap for me. But a lot of the stuff in this paragraph here otherwise is just a little bit vague. So we have, she discovers Emmett's secret, unable to tolerate working with him. We're just, we're kind of missing the why here a little bit. And then we also have another kind of why question, which is, 
is, the query says, people in her family just don't about failing. You know, do we need to know why they don't fail or what does this mean? Later on in the query, we get the word perfectionist, but we're not really understanding early on if it's perfectionist in the sense of, you know, is she like clinically anxious or, you know, what is it about the perfectionism that kind of comes into play here? But otherwise, a lot of vagueness, again, we have, you know, her discovery about Emmett, you know, another shock this time about her dad, things like that. I think there's some, some good stuff in here. I liked the Lottie focuses on the part of life she can control, you know, getting the museum open on time. She's not interested in a new relationship, although maybe she is, that kind of thing. And there's a bit of voiciness here, which I think kind of skews towards the, the women's fiction, which is, you know, the bit about, I mean, those eyes, exclamation mark, is kind of what she's trying to get at is this swoony moment. So I got that voiciness coming through. If that tone fits the rest of the book, I think that voiciness is fine. But, you know, it, it did stand out a little bit as possibly too voicey for a query. And then in the last paragraph, I think we can get rid of the entire last paragraph except this line, which is genuine happiness can thrive in an imperfect life. And I liked that. So I would cut the rest of that paragraph and keep that. And then for the author bio, I think obviously this person's trying to convey their qualifications, you know, things that they've written and awards and things like that. The only thing I think that's a little bit disjointed here is that nothing really has to do with this book. You know, we, we're not really sure. Obviously, this person says it's their debut women's fiction. They're members of Women's Fiction Writers Association. So I think in order to kind of combat the fact that, you know, they're kind of launching into this new space, I think I really want to know maybe where did this idea come from? Or why is this book you need to write? Maybe just one line about exactly why this idea came to be or or how you came up with the hook, I think might actually connect this author bio a little bit more to the actual subject matter here. But yeah, it's a a really fun little concept and, and well done on the title. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages and then tell us your breakdown of that? All right. So we start off meeting our two main characters. So we have our female main character, Lottie, and her partner, which is Emmett. So basically, they're meeting at a restaurant after she has moved across the country. They're kind of having an encounter where he seems pretty stressed. They're kind of sitting down at their table. They're acting kind of awkward around each other, not really in sync at all. And she kind of keeps asking him, you know, are you okay? What's wrong? Are you tense? That sort of thing. And she assumes that she is going to stay with him. She just arrived and this is her long-term partner and long-distance partner. But he says that she's going to be going to stay at Franny's. And Franny is a cousin and close friend who lives in Brooklyn because his place is getting painted. And we're kind of, it doesn't really exactly specify, but it seems to be that she has an allergy to paint. And that's why she can't stay while the painters are there. So she's kind of sent off to stay with the cousin. However, she kind of says like, oh, okay, you know, maybe my allergies won't be too bad. You know, she's kind of fighting it and says she wants to go. And they head off to his place in a car, which in New York City, as most people know, you're going to be using public transit or walking. He has a pretty big vehicle and they're trying to maneuver around New York City with their giant vehicle. So it's really just a setup for an awkward reunion and a tense reunion for this couple. And here's my analysis of our materials. So a lot of this, I think, is that balance between this kind of commercial women's fiction voice, kind of figuring out what is the voiciness, what is the tone, trying to kind of bring in the reader with sympathy and and trying to do this dance as a lot of commercial women's fiction books have to do. And so a lot of books in this space, it's simultaneous about leading the reader, but also being entertaining at the same time, because it's very obvious that this couple is going to break up. I mean, they're not in sync at all. You know, they're they're not able to communicate. They're absolutely not on the same page in, in any capacity whatsoever. And a, some of the quirks that she did 
doesn't like about him, such as apparently he swears and she doesn't like swearing, is one thing that was mentioned. Like, all he's doing is, you know, swearing. He's in New York City. He's driving. He's cursing. And it just reminds her of how much she doesn't like that about him. So all in all, it's just very obvious these people are going to break up. So this is kind of part of the, the commercial women's fiction setup sometimes, which is, you know, sometimes we have to have a breakdown in order to rebuild. So a lot of it is feeling a little bit tropey, not necessarily in a super bad way, because sometimes tropes are wonderful. Sometimes tropes are so comforting. And, you know, we know what to expect from the book. And as a reader, you know, tropes can just feel comforting to us. So we kind of want to balance that feeling comfortable about this trope in this setup with also being surprising. And so I think I would just try to just encourage you to just be conscious of that maybe if you're not conscious of it and if you are conscious of it I think one of the things I would try to encourage you to pay attention to is what the dialogue is doing versus what the narration is doing because a lot of times you know what she's saying is obviously different than what she's feeling but also there's a bit of a disconnect between a lot of things here you know it's the feeling of this character's trying to be connected in this moment and she's also feeling disconnected so I'm just not sure how much the creator you know the author here is aware of what they're doing versus kind of what what I'm, what I'm pointing out about this, but I, I just really felt a little bit of a disconnect, which, and I don't want the reader to feel disconnected. That's the big thing for me, right? So even if you're trying to show that these two people are not meant to be together, we don't want the reader to feel distant from them. We still want the reader to feel sympathy for them, whether they are or are not going to get together. So I just wanted the writer to know that you are creating a lot of distance between us. And I think I would try to to get to a little bit more sympathy here. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Cece, let's go to your second query letter. Will you read that for us? Dear Cece, I am pleased to send you Other Powers, a YA fantasy novel of 100,000 words featuring magical botany, queer longing, and morally complex characters. It will appeal to fans of socially critical fantasy, such as Robert Jackson Bennett's The Founders Trilogy and Netflix's Arcane, and also to readers who enjoy YA with a literary voice, for example, the work of Catherine Arden. 14-year-old Amala is scraping a living, selling herbal remedies when a mage, Olin, appears at her door, looking for someone who can help her germinate some unusual seeds. Realizing this may be her only chance to learn magic, Amala decides to bargain and insists that Olin give her lessons in return. She even begins to hope that she can master the skills necessary to earn entry to the Forbidding Citadel, home to a school of magic for the wealthy and powerful. She soon learns that Olin is wanted for crimes against magic, and that the Citadel's ruthless enforcers are combing the city for any sign of the mage's research. Amala is too determined to become a mage to stop now and grows the seeds in secret, a decision that will cost her everything she knows when Olin's plan finally comes to fruition. Stranded far from home and reeling from the disorienting psychological after-effects of Olin's experiment, Amala must find a way to rid herself of her former mentor's lingering influence over her mind before she loses all sense of self. I'm originally from the north of England and currently teach at an international school in South Korea. When I'm not teaching or writing, I'm studying for an MA in Applied English or watching Star Trek. Other Powers would be my debut novel. Thank you for your time and consideration. Kind regards, Jay Rothy. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on that query? 
So thank you for sharing this query with us. I was really intrigued by the line, magical botany, queer longing, and morally complex characters. So that line is definitely doing its job because I was like, ooh, intriguing. Let's focus on the plot paragraphs since... In my opinion, that is the most important part of the query letter. Paragraph 1, she even begins to hope that she can master the skill necessary to earn a position. Could we change that to something more active? So for example, you know, since she's just starting to learn magic, perhaps her potential is so amazing that she, you know, begins to believe that she has this this skill. So you know, when she excels at the lessons at record speed, maybe she even, you know, manages to be better than Olin in one or two spells, which is unheard of. And that kind of potential is what makes her create this ambition of going to the school. I just wanted it to be more active as opposed to just, you know, a belief or a hope without any indication of why she would believe that. And then the second plot paragraph, I have two big notes. One note is that there's a lot of vagueness, and I'm sure that no one is surprised to hear me say this. A decision that will cost her everything she knows when Olin's plan finally comes to fruition. That's vague. I don't know what that means. And, you know, maybe it's intentional, but I think that we always talk about, you have to give us enough to keep me specific specifically curious. And I was with the first paragraph because I thought it was going to be a story about, you know, is she going to make it into the citadel or not? But that's not what happens, at least not according to the second paragraph, since the citadel and her entry to the school isn't even mentioned, not in the context of her, right? Like it is mentioned in the context of Olin. So it's like the second paragraph becomes a totally different book. This plot point, which I was intrigued about, seems to have been forgotten. And the sentences that are included in the second paragraph, disorienting psychological effects of Olin's experiment, a way to rid herself of the lingering influence, I don't know what they mean. So I'm not specifically invested. So my question is, is the story about her making her way into the Citadel, the school of magic for the wealthy and powerful? If so, then can we just you know, rephrase the second paragraph, making sure to make it about her and her entry and her journey. And if it's not, then I think that that's misleading in the first paragraph. So it's like we're talking about two different books. I would just revise that and make me feel specifically curious because that that is essential in a query letter. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, can you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages and your take on them? Amala arrives home from the market and someone is waiting in the stairwell for her. The hooded figure is revealed to be an old woman and, more importantly, a mage. So the mage asks for Amala's mother, but then she's at home. And as the mage is leaving, Amala calls out that her mom will be home tomorrow. So the Amala goes about her routine. We learn things about her world. We see her remembering how when she was a child, her mom would read her bedtime stories. But now that she's 14, she's much too old for that. And, you know, they both have a lot of work to do. She goes to the roof to see the city, including the citadel. And we get more information on both. And then she thinks about the mage, the mage that she saw for like a second as soon as she was arriving home from the market. She also remembers how as a kid, she used to wonder if her father was a mage until she finally asked her mom who like laughed and said, no, 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 you're just a regular person like all of us. And then we learn that Amala also recently learned that, you know, the reason why some people live in the citadel and the reason some do not is money. Because really only mages and students of magic are permitted to enter the citadel's walls. Magical ability is not something that's inherited or genetic in any way. It's really just acquired through years of study and practice. And so while the cost of that is not known, it is a lot of money. And so it's something that only a few people have access to. So that is what happens in the opening pages. In terms of my notes. So it's really important to start the story in a way that 
makes us feel incredibly curious. And curiosity thrives when there is tension and emotion. Someone is waiting for Amala when she arrives home from the market, right? Like I'm paraphrasing, but that is essentially the, the first line. Is this unusual? Or is her mom, you know, so in demand that there's always someone waiting for her? I wasn't clear because her emotionality wasn't conveyed. Like, I didn't know if this was supposed to be ominous, having someone waiting for her, or if it was just a regular thing. Or even if it wasn't a regular thing, if she wasn't scared, because it's not that kind of place. It's a hooded figure waiting for her, right? So I don't know. I, I think that that should have been clearer. And when she does realize that it's a mage, the emotional calibration is off. Because she realizes it's a mage, there's a whole conversation, and then we get her shock, right? Like, the fact that a mage is there in the outskirts of the city is not only unprecedented, but unthinkable. If it is that shocking, that is the first thing that we should see, since visceral emotions have to come before any type of explanation, any kind of dialogue, any kind of anything. Visceral emotions do not wait for any type of intellectual thinking. This need for more emotionality kept happening. And I want to say that like, there's a lot of potential here. The query letter promised me that this would appeal to readers who enjoy, I think it was socially critical books or something like that. I forget exactly what the line is. And you know, it's true based on the hook. The fact that magic isn't something that's genetic, isn't something that just happens, but rather is something that only the wealthy have access to is so interesting. But in order for me to be interested, not just in the concept, but in Amala herself, I need more access to her internal life with tension as opposed to information on the city. So we have a lot, a lot of lines here. I highlighted some of them. That's just context. So for example, Tessa's homeland was an expanse of forested marshland away to the south that city dwellers disparagingly called the swamp but that its inhabitants called Ethis. Ethesian mythology was populated with deities that ruled over the natural world, shape-shifting at will between their human and animal manifestations. Sefti was one such deity, an insatiably curious, good-natured meddler, etc., etc. This is not badly written at all. Maybe someone's thinking, oh, is it because my writing isn't good? That's not it. It's because it's explanation. Explanation kills tension. It's not specific to the character. It's not personal. And more importantly, it's not making me wonder, ooh, what's going to happen next? And that's what I mean. There was just a lot of chores happening, a lot of her mundane day-to-day -day activity. And we don't need, we need two lines about that at most. So as well, towards the end, she's thinking about the mage again, and she's not really adding anything to the encounter, with the exception of the memory about her father. But since that was just something that she supposed and not something that's actually true, don't really think it's adding anything. Even if it does turn out to be true, and this was just a curiosity seed, I still think we can do more than have her thinking to herself. Personally, I think, big picture note, a lot of explanation, it's killing detention, and it doesn't help that she's alone. It doesn't help. This is essentially with the exception of that very brief encounter, just her going about her day. So I would revise where you're starting the story. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, will you read us that last query letter? Dear Ms. Waters, thanks to you, Cece and Bianca, for such a practical, useful, and entertaining podcast. It became my favorite podcast immediately. I'm working my way through all the previous episodes. There is something I can use in every one. Please consider The Arsonist Returns, a mystery set in a small coastal South Carolina county, which is complete at 72,700 words. When a prominent attorney is shot and the prosecutor's wife goes missing, new sheriff Sonny Campbell must discover if these crimes and the return of a man Sonny put away 
for arson early in his career are related, or if the apparent link is merely smoke covering other evils. Fans of Michael Connelly and Harlan Coben will enjoy this book. Sonny is a cop that cares investigating people in his small county who have kept dark secrets from their close friends and family. Sonny is thrust into the sheriff's job after the sitting sheriff gets suspended. Sonny's first case is the shooting death of the suspended sheriff's brother-in-law. The only suspect is the ex-sheriff's sister. Sonny doesn't believe that it was an accident. At the same time, Anne, the wife of the prosecutor and Sonny's best friend, disappears. All this coincides with the return to town of a recently paroled man, Junior Watson, whom Sonny years ago sent to prison for arson. Junior is quickly connected to both crimes. Sonny's attempts to capture Junior for questioning are thwarted when Junior is killed in a downtown gunfight. Hoping to find Anne still alive, Sonny discovers that Junior was investigating the multi-million dollar real estate development that was erected on the site of the historical building Junior was convicted of burning. Sonny picks up the trail and uncovers a conspiracy that leads him to Anne's unsuspected murder. While I do not have any formal training in creative writing, I am an attorney with some experience in criminal defense. Additionally, I have received instruction and guidance from several independent editors who have assisted me with this novel and my first self-published novel, The Pursuit of Justice. I am the co-author of a nonfiction work, Blended Family Bliss. Included below are the first five pages of The Arsonist Returns. Yours truly, Ben. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on that? All right. So the title here is in lowercase and an underline. I would always suggest that you do titles in all caps. I find that it stands out much better and really pops off of the screen. So that's a technical piece of advice. I would also say that we would round our word count. That's another thing we recommend on the podcast. So this is 72,700. I would just, you know, round up to 73,000. Keep it easy like that. I found a lot of this query really wordy. I don't know if you guys saw me stumbling a little bit. There's a lot of like SS SS kind of like shooting, death, suspended, sheriffs, sheriffs, sister, sunny, like over and over in the line. So I, I would probably just recommend you either hear me read this aloud a few more times or also just read it aloud yourself because there's a lot of times when things were just wordy. For example, at the top here, it says a small coastal South Carolina county. You know, is there an easier way to say that? There probably is, you know, just just give it a shot. Things like that. I would also recommend that we, we move our comps up a little bit. They feel a little bit tucked in lower. They're kind of tucked in between two plot points. The other thing is, you know, Michael Connolly, Harlan Coben, these are huge brands. I would probably pick if there's a particular book of theirs that you think that this one aligns with. They're just, again, these are huge, huge brand name authors, which isn't a problem necessarily, but I would probably just, again, try to find something that aligns a little bit more closely with this particular work instead of saying, you know, I, I see myself as a fellow brand name author, which that's great. I hope we all aspire to that, but let's just get a little bit more you know, a little bit more to the fine point here when we're addressing this in our query letter. I would cut this last line. I, I think there's a typo in it. I tried to read it probably three times when we're recording here and I kept stumbling, but I would remove this last line from the second paragraph, the, the sunny is a cop line. I don't think that one's working. So next in our kind of main body paragraph, we have a lot of this, again, stumbling over over words, and it's quite complicated with the number of people. That's one of my recent complaints and queries is I'm just seeing a lot of people introduced. And we really just need to be clear about who is the main character and why does this particular story matter to this main character? Because we're introducing, you know, the sheriff's brother-in-law, you know, suspects, you know, the wife of the prosecutor, Sonny's best friend, Junior Watson, the paroled man... <laughs> 
Like we're just, we're naming so, so, so many people, which really makes this skew more like a synopsis than it does a query letter. So I really think we need to rework this. Can we simplify it? Can we make it smoother? And why does this all matter to Sonny himself, which is really critical to why this book matters in this context. So I would probably rework most of this. Again, read it out loud a number of times. You probably heard me stumble on the podcast reading it because I did find it tricky to to get through. Uh, Overall, though, I think, you know, your background, you know, you're an attorney with some experience in criminal defense. This is wonderful, wonderful context. Agents love to know that you have that type of experience because it just gives such kind of color and life to, to the actual subject matter, knowing that you know something about this. So I think that is, that's all great, but you probably need to rewrite your query. Sorry, Ben. Thanks, Carly. And as someone who's currently watching The Thing About Pam, the courtroom scenes there are giving me absolute chest pain. So, okay, will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages and then your take on them? Here we go. All right. So we right away are are launched into the crime scene. So the first line is, Sonny hadn't been to a crime scene since his wife died. Some said he wasn't the same. It was time to find out if they were right. So we're launched right into this crime scene moment. He's walking in. There is, you know, tropical storms. It says, you know, bursts of tropical rain. We're understanding like there's a, you know, a potential hurricane coming or there's a hurricane that just happened. So we have like very intense weather and a very intense crime scene, which is basically, we're told a dead man lay on his back illuminated by temporary spotlight. You know, so we're aware that there's a, a dead person here. So we're really just talked through the scene because the cop is is basically showing up. So we're getting walked through the whole thing. So we have, you know, the tech explaining what's happening. And then we're finding out the actual crime itself, which is this wife shot her husband point blank in the head because she believed that he was an intruder coming into their house, but really it was the husband coming home. And so we're kind of, we're getting all of that. We're also, the tech is kind of advising us on the scene. We also have the suspended sheriff show up, which was a very interesting, complicating factor here because the wife who shot the husband, the first person that she called was this ex-sheriff. So we're kind of understanding how related this small town is, how, you know, how everybody is connected, which obviously makes things really interesting. And then we we find out that he is planning on sitting in on the interview. So this ex-sheriff who has been suspended wants to sit in on the interview as, you know, a friend to the wife. And basically our, our sheriff is saying, absolutely not. You know, this is my crime scene. I'm kicking you out. And then people are debating whether this is in fact a murder or whether this is in fact an accident. So that's kind of where we're at. And so my analysis of this is basically that it feels extremely cinematic because we're we're walking right into the scene. You know, we have, we know where we are. We're kind of like beachfront, hurricane. You know, we can really see what's happening in this crime scene because we're being walked through it. And so it functions as a really good job of introducing us to the scene, but it also feels really natural because any, you know, sheriff walking into the scene would need to be kind of talked through from the tech, but the tech is kind of also explaining the scene to us. So I actually really liked that. However, we do start getting pretty technical and we start losing some kind of characterization because we don't actually know anything about our current sheriff because all he's doing is kind of observing the scene and being talked to. He is put in an interesting situation when this former sheriff comes up, his kind of ex-boss, who he kind of takes the place of because he was suspended. You know, that obviously introduces some some complicating factors. And we also find out that our sheriff's wife had died and it was from a swim 
swimming incident and we kind of get the sense that, you know, he wasn't able to rescue her. He went out to kind of get her and he didn't make it. And so that's kind of thrown in his face a little bit. So that's the one element where we actually understand a little bit about Sonny, our, our sheriff character. But other than that, it's mostly about everybody else. And so I don't think it's overly problematic. I just want you to be aware of that. But there is a lot of tension here. Tension between, you know, is this a murder or not a murder? Who's in charge of this crime scene? So many, again, interesting, interesting layers here. So I think you're starting in the right place. It feels right. But maybe just just be aware that it does feel like you're kind of walking us through the crime scene possibly a little bit too long. And we just kind of want to get to the drama as, as quickly as possible. So I think that your pages are way, way, way stronger than your query letter is. I don't think your query letter is doing this project justice. So go back and rewrite it. Wonderful, Colleen. Thank you, Carly and Cece, for looking at these queries for us. Remember, if you do want to submit to the Books with Hook segment, go to my website, biancamaray.com, go to the podcast page, and there is the form there for you to complete to submit your work. Right, now let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast-track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. 
Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hey Bianca, here are two fabulous writing opportunities for your listeners. First, write around the world. It's a chance for you to experience the magic of the AWA method delivered by a wide variety of facilitators. An opportunity to generate surprising new writing and to hear immediately what's working in the piece. And it's a fundraiser that supports the social justice work of Amherst writers, funding the training of facilitators to work with underserved and unheard populations, including Black, Indigenous, and other racialized people. A chance to do good work, both creatively and socially. Workshops are by donation, 10, 20, 30 bucks. Go to amherstwriters.org. Click on the Write Around the World link. Workshops are offered at all times throughout the month of May. And as for this summer... Haven't you always wanted to spend a week diving into your writing during the day, then diving into a lake afterwards with drinks on the dock after that? Well, come to the Halliburton School of the Arts this summer, a three-hour drive north of Toronto. So worth the effort. This program is operated by Fleming College and is open to writers of all levels of experience. It is a renowned program in an idyllic setting. I will be running a workshop August 15th to 19th using the AWA method please go to my website, suzywheelahan.ca, S-U-S-I-E-W-H-E-L-E-H-A-N.ca. Click on Available Workshops. You'll find lots of information about the programs and accommodation possibilities. Come on, dive in. Today's guest is the author of five books, including The Game-Changing Publishing Guide Before and After the Book Deal and the forthcoming memoir, The Year of the Horses. She's a writer and book coach hell-bent on preserving the joy of art making in a culture obsessed with turning artists into brands. A nominee for the Joyce Carol Oates Prize and the host of the monthly Beyond Fiction conversation series at Edith Wharton's The Mount, her essays and articles on creativity have been widely published in outlets like the New York Times and Interview Magazine. And her short story, This Is Not Your Fault, was recently turned into an audible original. A frequent interviewer of high-profile writers, she's also the founder of the learning collaborative The Cabins. It's my pleasure to welcome Courtney Mom, and you can sign up for her publishing newsletter, which is excellent. I have spoken about that before on the podcast, and you can enroll in her online writing classes, which are also amazing, at CourtneyMom.com. Courtney, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Bianca. And this is not the first time you've been on the show. You've been on the show before to discuss before and after the book deal. 
And for those of you who were lucky enough to attend our January retreat, Courtney was also a speaker there, the most popular speaker, as judged by the survey that we did after the facts of who everyone's favorite presenters were, and that came out to be Courtney, which means she may be coming back to a future retreat if we do one, which you may be finding out about fairly soon. Okay, so we got all of that out the way. Now, Courtney, when I met you, you were on pre-pub tour, busy discussing your second novel, which was called Touch. After that, you wrote before and after the book deal, and now you are writing a memoir. And what I love about this is what you said in your bio. We keep getting told we need to be brands. We need to build our brand. We need to be one thing or another thing. But damn it, we are artists. So please tell me about this rebellion because I utterly love it. Well, I love you for calling it a rebellion. So when we met, um, we were both on tour for books with commercial presses and we had a lot of support from our wonderful house at Putnam. And um, my pivot, I mean, I think of it as a pivot. It didn't actually start with before and after the book deal. It was with my third novel, Costa Alegre, which um, was a novel. So even though I wasn't under contract for that book, because it was a work of fiction, I was under sort of, you know, a verbal contract to show it to my my editor, Sally Kim at Putnam. But with that book, <laughs> with that book, I had made the quote unquote error of putting pictures in it because it it's written as an imagined diary of the of Pegine Guggenheim the daughter to Peggy Guggenheim the famous and notorious American art collector and it's supposed to be the only book she has with her when she's holed up in this crumbling Mexican villa at the outbreak of World War II right so it seemed natural to me that she would fill it with writing and also illustrations, but you hand, you know, a hybrid work <laughs> to a commercial editor and they freak out a little bit, right? So I was not willing to turn that book into something that was a little easier to swallow for, for a commercial reading audience, which meant that we turned toward the indie presses and notably Tin House and Maisie Cochran, who they're the same team I'm working with for, for my memoir, The Year of the Horses. Now, at that point, I'm at, you know, I, I, the thing I love about your show is how candid everyone is. And I think that's what people appreciate about me in general. So I'll be very blunt. The time at which I signed the contract with Tin House for Costa Alegre, I still had savings left over from my advance for touch, which was sizable. You know, I was really, really lucky with Putnam. They showed me a lot of, of support and faith. So <laughs> I had savings. The advance was so small. With my advance for my second book, I bought a house. With my advance for Costa Alegre, I paid off a month credit card statement. You know, I'm not exaggerating. But it was like a love child. I mean, I love that book. And it did give me the confidence to write for myself again, instead of an imagined reader, or to hit a certain amount of book sales. The thing about working with these commercial publishers is that Sometimes you really do get sizable advances, but they're investments, right, from the publishing house. They're investments. And you are, you know, a business partner and you sort of need to, to 
pull your weight and prove your worth. And honestly, it's, it's, it sounds crass to talk about it like that. But if you think about it from a business perspective, it makes sense. If your book underperforms, you know, your editor can love you like a daughter or sister or brother or whatever, but they need to convince the whole conference table to keep working with you. And if the sales aren't there, you know, it might, maybe, maybe it's not going to happen. That, that did not happen to me. I should make that clear. I still, still have a working relationship with Sally and intend to publish with her again, but it was just that this book didn't fit their list. Right. But I will say the absolute joy and freedom that comes from working with an independent publisher. And, and some of that freedom is financial, although you're not, most people are not going to get a, a, an advance that you can live on at all. It'll just sort of pay something off in your, a car payment or something. You know, we're talking under $10,000 to be clear, right? But what, what that means is you don't have to sell too many, an overwhelming number of books to earn out, right? And, and earning out means you, let's say you get a sizable book advance with a big five or big four. Let's say it's like $150,000. Holy moly, you'd be amazed how hard it is to sell out, to earn out your advance to get that amount of people to buy a $27 hardcover. Whereas let's say you get a $3,000 advance for your experimental short story collection, you could potentially earn out before your book even publishes, which is what happens to me with my third and fourth book, which were both with independent presses. The audiobook purchase alone had me earn out a full year before either of those books came out. And so what that looked like, like we've both been in this situation, many of your listeners have too, when you're touring for a book and you've got a big advance over you. Of course, this is a huge privilege, right? But me, at least, I'll speak from my own experience when, you know, I had a, a, an amazing publisher paying for me to be in a plane, paying for my hotel, my, my meals. And then you show up at your book event and there's five people and only two people buy a book. You do the math, right? That's not even covering your, your hotel room. And it, it, it made nobody was putting pressure on me. Again, I mean, they were wonderful with me, my whole editorial team, but I'm, I'm the kind of person I put pressure on myself. Now, the experience of touring with these books I have that are with independent presses, especially the ones where I'd earned about my advance out the gate, all of a sudden at my book launch, I wasn't staring into the crowd who came, who didn't. You know, if someone came up to me afterwards and said, oh, I'm waiting for it to come out of my library, instead of wanting to set my hair on fire, right, I just thought, oh, how lovely that you want to read my book because it didn't, you know, it didn't matter as much. I'd earned out. I, I had proved my worth. And now the touring and even the marketing and publicity just became about what it should be about, which is getting the book into the hands of the right readers and then enjoying the magical transformational experience of having the right person read your work. That is the privilege that comes with kind of the art first approach. <laughs> right. And I love that there was that pushback in terms of, I think you reached a sort of a crossroads there when your traditional publisher wasn't happy with the sort of more experimental form. You could have gone, okay, so I'm going to ditch these things and I'm going to write a book that they will feel comfortable with publishing. Or you go, no, this is the vision I have for the book and that is what I'm going to pursue. And then I'm going to find someone who can get on board with that vision. And that's something many of our listeners can relate to. And as artists, it's decisions we always have to make. And sometimes you just need the damn money 
and you you just don't have the luxury of saying, I'm going to follow my artistic vision for something. And sometimes you're able to say no to that. And it's wonderful, Courtney, that you did. And then you started writing your memoir. And this is such a deviation from sitting down to essentially make shit up. Because this is what we as writers do, right? We make shit up and then we make up more shit and we have a structure for a novel and we hit all the beats and there we go. But when it comes to memoir, I imagine that you kind of had to sit down from scratch and re-figure out how to do this. Can you tell us about your approach to the Year of the Horses? Absolutely. I'd be I'd be happy to. It's, it's fun for me to revisit because as with all of my projects, it started off with me writing the book in the wrong format, which is something I do really often. I have no joke, quite probably several full length book manuscripts that just needed to be a personal essay or an op-ed, right? And the Year of the Horses started off as a novel. I did not think I had the cojones, if you will, to put a memoir out in the world that involves, that had real people in it, my family, my husband, my daughter, wasn't too keen on that. <laughs> so I tried it as a novel, short story, tried it in a bunch of different formats that I was more comfortable with, and it wasn't working. And honestly, I just put, I put it aside. I tend to do that a lot. I don't, I don't think of it as abandoning, you know, I kind of take time out on projects and let them um, sizzle. <laughs> And it, it really wasn't until I wrote an essay for the New York Times in 2017 about trying to learn polo, the equestrian sport of polo at almost 40 years of age. And I just got the best feedback and letters and emails from people about that. And especially a lot of women who said, my God, like, I don't know anything about horses, but this article made me want to go back to my childhood passion of swimming, right? Dancing, um, violin, the violin's still under my bed. I haven't touched it in 35 years. And that made me think, well, gosh, I mean, I think there's something here. And apparently these, you know, 17 people do as well. So I started writing it as a memoir. And I have to I have to be honest, looking back, the difference for me between memoir writing and fiction writing really comes into play in the pre-publication when you're dealing with sharing the work with family members, perhaps the legality of having characters who are real people. On a craft level for me, it was really not that different from writing fiction because just like with all my books, my first drafts were awful. And I was just getting people, notably myself, from point A to point B. My agent, she's always my first reader, and her comments on my first drafts were like, oh my God, Courtney, this is just about you going from barn A to B to C and trying to find a deal, you know, because you have a limited budget. Like, no one cares. And I said, oh, but it's so important. You know, I want to show people like I, you know, I really worked hard and it's such a privileged sport. She's like, none, you care about that. No one cares. And so like with every single novel that I've successfully published or successfully shelved behind me in my, my closet, you still have to find a way to get what's in your head and heart onto the page in a way that a reader's going to give a damn. Because my first drafts were chronological, right? They showed kind of what happened in a, chrono in a linear sense, which is very much how we write our first drafts, right? We think we have a plot for writing a, a novel. We think we have a plot, act one, act two, act three. And then we will often hear beta readers, you know, the, the character development's not there. I wasn't attached, like the emotional aspects not there and it was it for me it was the same in memoir what do i think is interesting about this period of my life i've chosen to write about 
but versus what will total strangers find interesting? And usually they're not the same thing. It's sort of akin to when you start getting trade reviews about a new book and you realize, huh, what I love about this book, people don't even notice. You know, other people start to tell you what they think is interesting. And with a memoir especially, I think you have to privilege the reader even more than in fiction. Because <laughs> with fiction, you have a lot of made-up characters, right? And if they don't like one person, there's usually somewhere else, someone else to like. But with memoir, even if you're doing something of a, you know, a hybrid or double timeline form, which is what I've done, there's reported research. So you can certainly get a break from me and learn about the history of women and horses. But still, if you don't like me and you don't like my voice, not going to buy the book and you're going to put it down. So it really was an excavation, like with all my other revisions of meeting the reader more than halfway, making an overture toward, toward that reader and finding a structure that would allow me to present a highly personal experience in a universal way. Yeah. And something Colleen and Cece say on the podcast quite often, because we get people who write in with their query letters and opening pages, a lot of it's memoir. And we'll say the thing that happened to you or whatever happened in your life, it's really interesting to you. And obviously it's been really significant to you and something you needed to work through. But why does it need to be out there for other people? What are they going to get from from your personal experience? And that's what we're constantly saying in terms of it needs to be something unusual that other people are going to relate to and love for their own reasons that may not be the reasons why you sat down to write something. And that's why we're always telling people how to frame their hooks in terms of their memoir like that. And another thing we say is that it also needs to kind of be structured in the way of a novel, in the same way that a novel has an inciting incident and a key event and certain story beats that need to be hit. A memoir needs to do the same because again, you are still wanting to entertain people. You still want them to be asking questions. You still want them to be turning the pages. So was that your experience of writing your memoir or do you say something completely different? Oh, no. I mean, we're in complete agreement. And, you know, not that I want to give a PSA to myself, but if you go to my website, CourtneyMom.com under classes, I have put together a one hour masterclass about memoir writing that truly boils all of this down in a way that I think will help people answer the question you just posed. This is interesting to you. Why in the world should someone spend, you know, $30 with tax included on it? I work as a writing coach. And similarly to what you said, when I see people's queries, I see a problematic confusion between memoir and recollection. If you want to get a memoir published, it cannot be you looking back on things that have happened to you. Even though it's a memoir and thus a lot of the emotional content and inciting incidents or, or, or triggering incidents are going to be in the past, something needs to be happening in the narrative present. So my class teaches people how to write a double timeline and the timeline B, you know, will probably be in the past, but timeline A, we need to see you, the narrator, on a quest, just like we do in fiction. And even if it's experimental, this rule holds, you know, even in Maggie Nelson's Argonauts, which is an incredibly experimental memoir, there's a quest to become pregnant. And in my book, it's will she or won't she learn how to play polo without falling off and being trampled by horses every time? 
And also, will she get out of this depression and save her marriage? But mostly, you're sort of coming for the funny scenes where I'm trying to learn polo. Now, there's there's a whole bedrock of other things going on, but that's that's the present timeline. And time after time, I look at these query letters and the manuscripts, they're, they're just achingly beautifully written. And, and a lot of the things that have happened in the past are so timely, so important, very very valid experiences in infertility and trauma and but what i always tell people you hate to make it sound simple because it isn't but it you need a quest that needs to take place within a certain time frame it's silly almost how much can be changed if all these recollections are bundled up inside someone who needs to earn a certain amount of money by the end of the summer to buy a guitar, right? Or, you know, whatever. A certain thing needs to happen in a certain time frame or else. That's all you need. I mean, I, well, then you need to write the book. But that formula, I hate the word hack, so let's not use it. It's a guiding principle. And if you keep that guiding principle in line, you will save yourself from writing a, a diary when you could, in fact, write a memoir. Yeah, and tons of people then get confused as well and think it's autobiography. So I'm so glad you mentioned that there's a short period of time because this is not your entire life from when you were born until whatever happened to you now. And for you, there were things that you spoke about in your childhood, but it was through the lens of things that pertained to this novel. It was not just everything that happened in your childhood and every single damn thing you could possibly recollect from that, etc. So I imagine that when you sat down and decided which anecdotes, which recollections, etc. would be included, it was very much through that lens. How did you decide what to keep and what to take out? That's a great question. And I really enjoyed devising my answer to it because what I did, well, first of all, the way things worked for me was that my editor, Maisie, acquired my terrible first draft, right? And my own agent who employs tough love, and I love her for it, said to me, this is a really bad draft. You know, I'm not sure if Tin House is going to buy it. And I said, Maisie knows me. She knows what I'm capable of in, in revision. She'll buy it. I'm not going to get a lot of money, but she'll buy it. And she did. And we opened our second time book relationship with just a long phone conversation. And in that conversation, she asked me questions which really delved into my childhood, which I'd been avoiding in the first drafts for multiple reasons, right? Didn't really want to expose my family on the page. I was dancing around my privileged upbringing, white woman horse story, right? Lots of stuff. And so bless her, she was like, oh my God, you grew up rich. Could you just show it to us, please? Like... <laughs> <laughs> get over yourself, you know. But she started asking me these questions and it was truly like someone had unlocked a treasure chest in my gut. And these memories started floating out and these visions of things that I'd forgotten about. Like there's this rocking horse that was made of pure mahogany and weighed honestly probably 2,000 pounds. And it was so heavy you couldn't rock it. And it was a gift to me when I was five, right? And she was like, are you kidding me with this metaphor? How did you forget about it? And she unlocked all these images. And all it took was a one-hour conversation with her. And I hung up and I quickly scribbled all the images that had come to mind. And then I watched, I watched my childhood and then with flashes of my adulthood from the year period that we're talking about, like a movie trailer. And watching that movie trailer in my head led me to understand what needed to be there and what didn't. And so what I did was really right after this conversation, I storyboarded the book. 
the way that you would for film. So I took a piece of printer paper and divided it into six boxes and had a reigning image in each one, you know, like the rocking horse. And then I thought if this was a movie and we opened with me on the beautiful rocking horse and the gorgeous, you know, Greenwich, Connecticut Christmas scene, where do we go from there? Well, we have to go to the present. What's in the present? And I basically wrote the movie <laughs> version, which is cinematic and visual, storyboarded it. And then I had, you know, maybe six page storyboard. And from there, I outlined my chapters. And the book that's coming out this week is faithful to that storyboard. So that's a process I've, I've learned because I'm, I'm married to a filmmaker. So that kind of visual storyboarding is something I've come up with, but it's also very much thanks to a really privileged emotional relationship I have with my editor, Macy. She knew the right questions to ask and she knows me, right? And, you know, I will say for people listening to this who are frustrated by, gosh, I thought I had a manuscript or a proposal that was going to get me a book deal with one of the big publishers. And in fact, it's looking like I might have to go to an, a college, a university press or a micro press and take faith at, at whatever level you're working at, what matters most. I want to say more than the money, but of course, sometimes the money really matters. But in an ideal world, what will matter most in the long term is your working relationship with your, your editor and your agent. If they get you and they respect the material and your process, and they know what you're going for, the way it feels to have that kind of working relationship is going to be worth a lot to your heart. <laughs> yeah, I've been lucky enough to find that now with my agent, Cece, because I always wanted a more collaborative approach. That's what we have now because she realizes that's what I need. And it is, it's absolute gold. It's, it's amazing. One last question before we have to go. In terms of the difficult conversations you had to have with people, because you were saying, you know, you didn't want to expose the family in certain ways. I noticed you changed your husband's name in the memoir, even though it's an easy thing to Google to figure out who he is, etc. So what were those conversations like? And did they come at the beginning of the writing, at the end of the writing, throughout the writing? What's your advice there? So I changed both my husband and my daughter's name. And I did that at the outset because I could not write this book using their right names. It felt like such a betrayal and an overstepping. So I fictionalized their names just from a craft point of view to allow me to get at the material I was trying to, to excavate things. And then, I mean, I... For people who want the longer answer, I just wrote about this for poets and writers, but sometimes memoirists are legally obligated to seek permission from people when defamation of character is, is at stake, you know, when your publisher could be sued for defamation of character. My team at Tin House did not thought, you know, the only defamation of character is maybe Courtney against herself, because <laughs> I'm pretty hard against myself. So I wasn't obligated to share this with anyone in the book, but because it's my fifth book, and I know what it feels like to go out on the road virtually or physically and promote a book. I multiplied in that, that in my head by 20 because it's a memoir, that rawness, that vulnerability, that inability to sleep, like those frazzled nerve endings. And I thought, dear God, I do not want to be out there with a book and then get, start getting these text messages from high school girlfriends and my dad saying like WTF, you, you know, B I T C H, right? 
So as early as I could, it was about nine months out. I just started sharing the book with everyone in it. And for people who just show up in a paragraph or two, I would give them the whole chapter so they can see how it lands. And then with people like my family members, you know, I handed over the whole thing. And that allowed me to not just get out ahead of what I could in terms of the material, but also to incorporate any feedback they had, which some people are susceptible to this feeling like the way I remember it is the way it stands. I was surprised that, you know, my family members, especially my mom, had some really, they pointed out some errors that I made that were egregious, just in terms of I remembered things wrong. And what I did with the book, which really was very enjoyable and healing for me, is I let my initial mistakes stand, because usually it was something I remembered in my childhood. And then you'll see me kind of course correct as an adult. And I actually say, you know, I called my mom to ask her about this. And she pointed out and in that way, I, I do think, and I did that with my husband, you know, like he has a specific memory of a car accident that's kind of pivotal in the book. And I remembered it a different way. And I didn't 100% agree with his and he definitely didn't agree with mine. So I put them both in, right? And then the reader can have the sum total. And that felt fair. That kind of uh, inclusion also felt like I was honoring my relatives. And I just think for me, it's a more honest portrayal of the complexity of my own family and how there's never one truth. It also added quite a bit of humor, I think. <laughs> I, so that's how I went about it. I, I love that. And I love that you stayed true to the initial misrememberings. Because the, those are the things that shape us. The way we remember something, even if we remembered it wrong, you can go your whole life not knowing you remembered it wrong. And that becomes this burr in your psyche until such time as someone corrects you. That doesn't take away the damage that the misremembering did or the, you know, your perception did. And that's such an important part of unpacking our experience and who we are. So we're now at the end of our time. For our listeners, as you know, we are huge Courtney Mom fans. Don't just go out and get before and after the book deal. But that really, it's like a writing Bible. You need that book. Go out and get her works of fiction and definitely, definitely get The Year of the Horses, not just for our memoirists, just for anyone who loves reading good writing. Courtney's an excellent writer. And this was another wonderful, wonderful wonderful, engaging read. So we'll put it up on our bookshop.org affiliate page and you can find it there. Thanks so much, Courtney. Thank you so much for having me, Bianca. If books about writing and story theory have confused or frustrated you, then there's a new podcast you need to listen to. It's called Story Nerd and it's co-hosted by two literary editors who are also writers. On the show, Valerie Francis and Melanie Hill analyze a different film each week so that we can all deepen our knowledge and understanding of storytelling principles. Their goal is to demystify story theory so writers spend less time studying and more time writing. And at the end of each episode, they suggest an action item so that you can immediately put the lessons on the episode to work in your manuscript. The more we understand how stories work, the better our stories will be. You can find the podcast at storynerd.simplecast. That's simplecast.com. And it's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more than a dozen other platforms. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. 
I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more.
And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.